there, I'm Mickey Johnson, and you're listening to Leading by Example, a podcast where we'll explore how work shapes who we are, personally, interpersonally, and emotionally, in conversations with leaders about the ways they've evolved and the relationships that have driven those changes. Chris Murphy is the president of Zoomforth, a company he founded and led as CEO for six and a half years before stepping back to his current advisory role. Zoomforth is an enterprise software company that helps customers easily design beautiful websites like Squarespace, but for professional communications. After stepping back from his CEO role at Zoomforth, Chris moved to Mexico City and spent the better part of the year learning Spanish, salsa dancing, and the drums. He's currently the director of strategic planning for Borde Politico, a nonprofit dedicated to strengthening democracy in Mexico through the use of information technologies, citizen engagement, and policy advocacy. I met Chris years ago when Zoomforth's main customers were recruiting teams. Through mutual clients and business interests, we became friends who found we also had mutual interests in things like intentional communities, Latin America, and eventually finding a way to step back from our leadership positions. I'm currently working with the Job Portraits team to decrease the company's reliance on me so I can pursue new passions, especially leadership coaching. So I found Chris's perspective on his role shift incredibly helpful. I hope our conversation also provides helpful insights to anyone out there struggling to lead a wide variety of people and roles. Hint, context matters. Welcome to Leading by Example podcast. Thanks so much for being here. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. How do you think people you lead would describe you as a leader? I think, as is the case with leadership in general, it's very context dependent. And so it depends both the role, the particular person and the reason for me having been leading. But I think there are some commonalities across that. I think there is a, I probably have a tendency to try to use charisma, humor as a tactic for building trust. And so one of the common things that I've heard either directly or indirectly is that I think people who I have led or been working with have a sense that that I like them and I want to be around them. And I've tried to orient myself towards those people. And as a result, there's, there's a trust that affords me some ability to lead because of because of that sort of personal affinity. So that's probably one of the things that are, I'm sure, exceptions to that. And I think another is depending on the context and ability to persuade, which is probably an important characteristic or can be of leadership. Certainly there are plenty of elements of leadership or archetypes that I that I don't associate with, but I, but I think one that's been important is the ability to sort of craft a narrative around whatever I think is important to lead on. So it might be two two broad things that I'll, that, that would typify how I lead. Mm-hmm. I appreciate that idea of there being different archetypes of leadership and sort of, I think what was suggested by your comment is that you, we have the opportunity to sort of pick and choose to a certain degree, which archetypes we identify with and which of those we want to activate as leaders I'm curious a little bit about your trajectory as a leader. Like, tell me a little bit about when you started leading and what the majority of your leadership has been and kind of where you are now. And are there archetypes that resonate more or less, or are you more 
thoughtful about which you engage with now as a leader? I'm I'm sure there are archetypes that will resonate more and and those that resonate less. And I, and I remember, especially as I was growing the team at Zoomforth, where I was the CEO for a while, I would read leadership books and one book would be called The Seven Essential Archetypes of Leader and the other <laughs> the 13 definitive archetypes of leader. And so there are a number with which one might identify. Yesterday, in fact, this is sort of funny timing. I was chatting with my mom because I'm thinking about how to apply some of those in, in, in what I might do next. And my mom shared a story that surprisingly I, I, I hadn't heard, but evidently in preschool, the only thing I remember about preschool, legitimately the, the only thing, was that we got to build a lot of stuff with these sort of wooden blocks and mm. little artifacts and, and whatnot. And evidently, according to my mom, who tends to or consistently exaggerates, so take this with <laughs> a big grain of salt, but according to my mom, she somewhat consistently would show up and I would have the sort of largest or most complicated block structure or whatever it was that we were mm. building. And eventually my mom asked the... Uh, the teacher, why is Chris building disproportionately large ornate objects? And she said, oh, it's that Chris is convincing the other students to help him with his <laughs> before they get to theirs. And you can take that in a positive light or a negative light, but I do think there is something reflected in that that I didn't know <laughs> ran through such a long period of time, but probably one of those one archetypal characteristic is the galvanizing others to work with me. And there's sort of opposite archetypes, probably some rebel who's out on their own and, and getting people to follow without persuasion or, or who knows, I'm sure you're, you're better informed on that. But I think that's one that's followed. Mm -hmm. I'm really interested too in this idea of galvanizing people, persuading people, getting people to come along on this journey with you. I don't know that I have that as much in me or, or like maybe I have it in different ways or maybe I'm, I'm more likely to get people to come along on some like personal journey of growth for themselves rather than like a big vision kind of thing. So like I'm curious how, how do you do that? Do you even know how you do it? Or is it something that's just sort of innate in you? And and are there any moments where that has failed or where you've realized that you need to like adjust or, or do something else? Probably numerous moments where it's failed, but it, to the former first, I think to some degree, I can probably identify ways of doing it. And there's also probably a lot in how we lead or exhibit any behavior that's um, less visible to us. But I think, you know, one of the interesting difference, you brought something to mind that I think is an interesting difference. One is sort of, you mentioned, do you persuade by appeal or is there a big vision? I think having a big vision, I think, is one way to potentially persuade without being skilled at persuading, right? And I think that's actually probably the easiest way. It might be necessary, but not sufficient. But I think the most compelling sort of ammo you can have for convincing somebody to, to come along is a why that is inherently interesting. I've actually, I think there have been times where I've really, in, in leading a number of different organizations or groups, there have been times where I have had that. And I think as a result of 
having that feel conviction and then therefore feel confidence in myself and in my invitation to others. And that sort of reinforces fundamental maybe capacities I have in leadership. Mm, Yeah. So it sounds like there's kind of, there's the big idea and then there's the the being able to empathize with the person across from you and craft a narrative that is what they need to hear or what's going to resonate with them. And if you're lucky, you get to be in a situation where you have both, (laughs) where you're really excited about the vision and you can sell that. And then you can also personalize it for different people outside the organization, inside the organization. Is that kind of what we're talking about? I think that's right. And I, obviously there are different dimensions of that to, to the example of, or, or to the point about personalization, I and, and this is same, same, but different talking about management. But I think one of my biggest management lessons that was not necessarily intuitive going into management was that there isn't sort of a style of management that works. There are just a whole bunch of different styles according to the person and situation. I think that which is true of it is is also true of leadership, that there are certain things that, quote, work, but it's all context-dependent. And so it's your ability to to apply that in different ways that I think makes it useful. Mm, Yeah. What allows you to apply different tools in different contexts? Like, have you learned anything that that has helped you be more flexible or helped you understand the myriad different ways that people may want you to be a manager? Or how have you learned that? Quote, leadership was this big, multifaceted behemoth of a a topic that, that was exhibited in different ways in different scenarios. I think one of the more important learnings was when I first started working in my company and realizing, and this is nothing novel, but just that we had a lot of different people who wanted different things. And there was no way for everyone to get everything they wanted in the same way with me leading them. And so it required a lot of listening and and balancing and modulating the sort of capacity I had to move a little bit this way for one person and that way for the other person without being totally modulated and customized. But but it was a very obvious lesson that for us to work well as a team and get what we wanted, I, I had to acknowledge, listen to, and accommodate myself in a lot of different instances to different people. And so there, there's not as much a juicy story there as there is just a, an obvious learning for me where when I was listening better and saying, oh yeah, I can move a little on this. And I understand how you like to have these conversations and doing that one by one, we just performed a lot better and people were happier than when I was saying, here's a format, like it or not. I'm, what I'm noticing is that listening is this thing you keep saying, right? Like like really being able to listen to the other people and hear what they need and understand what's going on in the context. Do, do you have a sense of where you learned to listen in that way to other people? Because it's a really important skill and it's, uh, I don't know where I learned it either. I have to think about it, but it's something I think I have too. And it's so core and some people are terrible at it. <laughs> People might accuse me of being terrible at it, right? I have the mic right now, and so I can say that that's what I enjoy doing. But, but I think 
So when I reflect on that question, both for myself, but perhaps more, what's more useful is when I think about some other folks I think of as really good leaders or who I respond to. One of the characteristics, I think, in their capacity to listen, although I think it can be learned, but one of the uh, characteristics is just a real curiosity in other people, right? I think if you either curiosity or a real empathy or caring for other people, and sometimes one leads to another, but that seems to be a critical feature. And then, of course, there are there can be learned techniques to dialogue, staying on your side of the net, not projecting, et cetera, et cetera, that can be really helpful tools. But I think probably the most powerful thing is some genuine curiosity in another person. Maybe that can be learned or not. I'm not entirely sure. But I think that deeply affects one's natural instincts towards listening and then then probably being able to to come to mutual understanding. Mm, Yeah, that makes sense. And and yeah, I think that's something I definitely have. I'm, I'm sure I got it from from both of my parents. And, and it's a big part of being a journalist, obviously, is, yep. is being deeply curious about things in general and people specifically. Do you, do you have any idea where that curiosity like comes from for you? I grew up in a fairly, to, to some degree, a weird family. My dad was one of 12 and they also fostered kids at different times and they were this huge i mean by virtue of being a family of 14 people you're necessarily diverse at least in some Mm. respects but then in many many other dimensions as well where i was really effective and the way of learning was putting myself in in challenging situations and a lot of that turned out to be in situations with people where i was uncomfortable talking to new people different people and i just had to learn and so that both in academic subject matter by putting myself in the field and research. Hmm, That's super interesting. I like that idea of throwing yourself into challenging situations as a way of learning. Does that connect for you to starting a business? Was that a challenging thing with other people to throw yourself into and to to learn something? Or was there a different motivation there? Yeah. I I mean, there was also a different motivation, but I think... I was asked a few days ago why I started Zoomforth, and obviously this is somewhat tongue in cheek, but also there's it's, it's earnest as well. I mean, it was in part hubris and naivete. There was, but also in the context of knowing. I remember when I was when I was thinking about the idea, my thought at the time, among others, was well, worst case scenario, I'll, I'll learn a lot, which I actually think is a myth of starting a startup. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And how long were you CEO of Zoomforth? How many years? Six years in total. Okay. So that's where I am with job portraits. Yep. <laughs> I'm, I'm curious about the change in mindset that happened for you during those six years, because it sounds like you came in with some now recognized naivete and hubris. And it seems like we obviously were talking during that time and staying in touch a little bit over the years. And I know with job portraits too, a lot of ups and downs, a lot of like, man, I wish I'd known this earlier. Like, oh, you know, like I would have done this a lot differently from the beginning, but sometimes you just have to learn it that way. Like what were some of those big shifts that you went through over those six years? 
Yeah, I mean, there are so many. It's hard to it's hard to summarize, and and there have also been some interesting ones in stepping back. And as with any experience, particularly intense ones with startups, you step out of your your situation and realize the limited perspective that that you had. And and so there have been learnings there, and also learnings in watching the new CEO, Wendy, who's just awesome, and her her real gifts in some of the stuff that I that I didn't possess. So there, there are millions of lessons, but I think some of maybe some of the more interesting stories of learnings through the ups and downs and expectation failures and building confidence and all that. Let me think for a second. One, I think interesting lesson was the the challenge and i think as a as a first time founder i don't think i was the exception in that in the sort of feeling that when you're really excited about an idea first off you're certainly not doing the your research or you're perhaps not viscerally adopting the mindset that this is not going to be a rocket ship success mm-hmm. and that it might take, even if you're successful, 10 to 15 years, but you think, cool, this idea, and you start running from there and you're able to build a narrative around that, which can be really useful, right? Both to yourself and to others. But I think one of the, the interesting learnings that happens for virtually everybody, independent of how successful their bottom line is or not is that there is some expectation failure there right you see almost no companies there are some outliers but you see almost no companies that just happen exactly according to plan and explode in some exponential growth and 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 because there are so 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 few that are like that and virtually everybody isn't you necessarily encounter the moments of disappointment or expectation failure in which the narrative that you have shared both of yourself and perhaps more importantly as a leader with those around you who have decided to forego other opportunities and work with you, you have, that narrative you have shared is wrong. You have proven to, to have been wrong. Mm-hmm. And obviously that's, that's a harsh way to frame it. And part of it is framing and, and, and not setting up like that. But, but nevertheless, you have to confront what then to do, and also how to, particularly as you learn that you might be wrong or you might not meet those lofty goals over and over again, that, that it might happen a lot, how do you maintain credibility and how do you build narratives that are both ambitious and risky and are able to fail, but that don't sacrifice your credibility as a leader such that people say, how could I believe what he's saying? Like we didn't hit that super ambitious goal. And that I think is a, um, an important lesson in narrative management and motivation that I, that I had to cultivate and, and, and certainly failed in some cases and, and succeeded in others. You say there's so few companies where they just hit it and it's this overnight success. But I think the problem is 
those companies get a lot of attention. And so if you're not really in this world and you're not paying close attention, it does sort of feel like that's what happens. Or if you don't know the first part of the story, like if you don't know that these huge behemoths that we think of were actually around for five years under a different name, doing a totally different thing, stumbling around in the dark, trying to figure out what the heck they actually wanted to do with themselves, then there there is this idea that if you're not some kind of immediate overnight rocket ship, you're doing something wrong. And then you have employees who bring that expectation in. And then you kind of need to feed into it a little bit with investors and getting people on board and um, all that. So it's a hard place to be in. I think Jackson and I were spared from that because we we failed so badly at the first company that we had together that A, we weren't going after venture capital, which kind of relieves a lot of that pressure. And B, like, like our pitch to people was like, we might not be around in six months. If you're not okay with that, don't join us. You know, I mean, like, like that's like, we just knew that we had to look for people with like really, really, really high risk tolerances. And that's like basically what we were going for. And it was really like, if you want to work with us and you want to work on this stuff and this seems cool to you, great. We're going to do it as long as we can, but like no guarantees. So I think that's great though. And it's a, it's a mutual filter, right? It works uh-huh. as a, you, yes, you do need to find people who do have the stomach for that and whatnot, but also it probably, there, there are people looking for that. And so, so, so I think, I think that's right. That, that makes, that makes a ton of sense. Um, yeah, for sure. I'm just wondering, was there a, a hard learning moment about that for you? Was there kind of a moment where it was like, oh crap, like we're not a rocket ship and that's kind of what I sold people. And did you get called out? Did things start to break? Like what happened? Interestingly for us, I, I think no is the simple answer in part because we consistently grew even if more slowly. And I think to some degree what we sacrifice in that is a really compelling, big narrative that can motivate. Yeah, it's interesting because we were seeing this with our clients too, where, yeah, a lot of them, they have they have a really great culture, they have a really great product that's really successful, but it's it's not it's it's not saving the world, right? It's a it's a it's a foundational piece of software architecture that lots of different companies use or something like that right like yep. some of those companies are doing great things and some of them are doing less good things and do you do you try to make a case for like how this is enabling these huge things and changing the world or are you just kind of are you just kind of honest and say like look like if that's what you need if that's what you need to feel motivated like this might not be the right place for you and if you're okay just like solving hard problems and working on a technical product that's interesting and working with really nice people where you're going to learn a lot you're going to be able to go on and do other things then like that this is a good place for you gosh it's one of the big lessons I've learned about leadership is, as well is that most people are not as, you know, cynical or won't scrutinize that perhaps as much as I do. And I, and it's in, an incredibly powerful tool. I remember a friend who, and I won't name the company, but it is a massive, very well funded company and uh, that has some dubious claims around their impact as a net plus for the world. Mm. And her, her husband was working there and she, she had, does not work in the the tech space, right? Where, where these stories are perhaps Mm. disproportionately large. Right. 
And she thought assuredly, while this is the brand story, the folks working in the company won't be drinking the Kool-Aid. It's obvious that, that there's this company does what it does, whatever. And she showed up to what was, you know, the company's sort of mixer with all the employees and their significant others or whoever it was. And she was shocked when she just started sort of soft polling people like, yeah, so what do you think about Mm -hmm. someone gave a speech that was the real raw, raw and people were drunk on the Kool-Aid and her reaction was, Oh, oh my God, how can people actually believe this? And my reaction was, of course they do. (laughs) And so I think that's and, and and obviously there's there's a cynicism in sharing the story, but but it's also true that the power of having a clean narrative, the reality is like people want that, and so it does make a really difficult decision when you think about how you are going to explain the why of what you're doing and the degree to which you're going to stretch that, and of course who you want then to to be a participant according to that decision. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's maybe one of the hardest like differences between employees that you have to be able to navigate and like flex around is like some people are need that. Some people like need mm-hmm. rah, rah, big vision. I'm excited. We're changing the world no matter what the company is. And some people are always going to be like, that's BS. I do definitely want to talk about your sort of transition out of the CEO role, especially because my relationship with job portraits is, you know, hopefully going to be changing over the next year. And I think I'm mostly just wondering, like, any any lessons and especially from like a kind of a personal side for you going through it? I don't know. How were you thinking about that in, inside of yourself and sort of dealing with the emotions of it and what were there things that surprised you or that you had to navigate that you, you know, didn't think you would. One of the reasons it was so hard to transition out was because there was a notable amount of the business that was dependent on me and my, how I interacted with clients or, or employees and also that I had let the business do a number of things. And you could truly have taken any person in the world and tried to sort of replace me. It says nothing of my skill nor theirs. I had just stretched it too far and held too much. And so the unwinding of that to enable a new leader to come in and lead in her own style and be effective, but maintain and then grow the business took a Herculean, what felt like a Herculean effort because I had just sort of, because I think I, I hadn't been forced to or hadn't chosen to do that effectively previously. So that was a, that was a tough learning, but I think, I, I hope it proves to be a valuable one to the degree that, or in whatever future organization I, I might be leading. Oh my gosh, that resonates so much. <laughs> and I maybe want to hear more about like, what what do you wish you had had in place before or done differently? But yeah, I mean, we, we tried to replace me primarily when I was going out on maternity leave with Kai two and a half years ago. And it was it was horrific for a company that's supposed to help companies hire people. We could not hire. So like we, we just, it took longer than we thought we hired the wrong person. We had to let them go immediately after we had somebody finally, that was great. She backed out the day before she was supposed to start. We finally found somebody who literally started the week I went out on maternity leave. And basically I was just like, 
sink or swim, like hope you get it. And a big part, and thank God he did. I mean, he was awesome. He's not with us anymore, but like he, it was a very important, like three months that he came in and just kind of like figured stuff out. Some of the things that that forced us to realize was that, for instance, I would say yes to projects that we'd never done before that were like, not really our sweet spot. Right. But, but my thing is like, I'm like, well, I can figure it out. And so I would just be like, well, the rest of the team can figure it out. And so then we had all these like weird projects that had like no templates and we'd never done before for and nobody else knew how to figure that stuff out. It was just me. And it turns out I was stressing out everybody under me anyway by doing that stuff. So like that was a good learning. <laughs> it was like, yeah. okay, stop doing that. Focus on what we're good at. Like stop stressing your team out. And then I think it's just the nature of being a founder is that what I've always heard is you're going to have to hire three people to probably replace what you're currently doing as a founder. Yeah. And yeah, trying to get that out of your head in a way that other people can take it and not just like do what you were doing, but do better, right? And grow it and like improve on it is friggin' so hard. So yeah, I don't know, any <laughs> any insights or anything that you sort of like wish you'd known earlier or, or even just to say like, it's going to be harder and take longer than you think is like helpful also. <laughs> Yeah, I mean that. I, I think I think that's definitely true. Perhaps the the grandest example or, or among them of like of organ of of leadership failure due to that particular dynamic mm. might be the failing of of Cuba. And I say that because I think it's an interesting story that I, I think Che is one of the most misunderstood figures in in modern western history but my reading of him is that there he is he, he is misinterpreted in a number of ways that he was ruthless or unprincipled or sloppy or whatever and none of those things are true i think his grand failure he was insanely principled to the degree that he was accepting v poverty wages and legitimately only living on that through through to his death his big fail, failing, and therefore, in, in my reading of it, the failing of communist Cuba, was that he built a system around the expectation that other people would be as disciplined or as principled or willing to sacrifice as much as he did. And that's just mm -hmm. not how people work. And so a political system built around that inevitably failed. And it collapsed when other people did start accepting corruption and weren't as principled in the application of justice and et cetera, et cetera. And I think while that's a different dimension, you can pretty clearly apply that parallel to a lot of issues founders have, myself very much included, in transitioning their incentives, their motivations, their way of doing things to scale or, or just to other people in a company to apply them. And the inevitable reckoning, or at least oftentimes the reckoning that you might not have the, you can align incentives to certain degrees, but they might not be completely aligned. And people might not be just as insert whatever characteristic as the founder is. Mm -hmm. And so planning for that, acknowledging for that, both sort of emotionally and tactically, I think is really hard and really necessary. And like you said, unfortunately, takes a lot of time. Mm, yeah, for sure. 
Well, thanks for that. I appreciate being compared to Che Guevara at any point. <laughs> um, <laughs> just for the novelty of it, mostly. Yep. But I usually, I usually end these podcasts by giving you know the guest a chance to to ask me a question. What I'm actually feeling compelled to do is like, do you have a question that you think I should ask myself through this process that would be helpful to help me through the process? What are the worst case consequences of the potential ways that the thing could go wrong when you leave? So in my mind, just to explain that, there were a number of things I really sweated over a lot that I that really emotionally affected me, thinking this could go wrong, that could go wrong. And there are going to be ups and downs and it's going to be weird, but like folks will figure it out. Or not, and like, really, what are the worst case scenarios? I, and, and scrutinizing just how bad they are. I, I, the projection there is that for me, the worst case scenarios would not have been all that bad. And mm-hmm. but that's yeah. No, I actually really appreciate that. I mean, I think one of the things I've learned in sort of personal worth work is that that's a great practice to go through. Right? Is like if you're having a lot of anxiety about something is to really walk into that and be like, okay, let's really entertain that possibility. The worst possible thing happens. Let's walk through that. Okay. Then this happens and then this happens and then this happens. And like most of the time you get to the end of that and you're like, I'm still alive. (laughs) Like I, I still have a roof over my head. I still have a relationship or whatever. My ego's bruised. Maybe some people are mad at me, whatever it is. But it forces you to realize that the the actual things are not nearly as scary as the the fear of them happening. Totally. Um, though I do think you hit on a good point there that like perhaps the 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 biggest consequence, depending on one situation, I, I don't want to overgeneralize, but but a huge part of it as a founder, and particularly a founder who's been working on something for such a long time, is the identity thing. Mm-hmm. And I guess, and this also I'm sure varies person to person, but I guess you know, one thing that I was pleased to experience is ultimately just how little that lingered. Mm-hmm. That the, the consequence of that particular piece of identity loss was not consequential. So just like not not having the title of CEO or whatever, even though that's how you'd thought of yourself for six years, it didn't change. Sure, already part of that, that narrative around yeah. it, right? I'm working on this because of this with these people, blah, blah, mm-hmm. blah. You redefine yourself, we're, we're adaptable, and you redefine yourself fairly quickly and and oftentimes with new points of curiosity and things that, that might be more exciting, more rewarding, who knows? Mm-hmm. Um, what's the thing that with if I may, we, we could stop here mm-hmm. and keep going. But I'm curious, what is, what are the one or two things that that you are most either uncertain or anxious about in the transition? Yeah, I think I think one thing is that there's a whole bunch of like weird little random questions and sort of support and stuff like that, that I provide or I provide answers to that. It's not that I'm the only person and I'm, I'm trying to get better at, at just holding space for people to think through the questions themselves. But 
especially doing the kind of work we do with like client work and stuff like that, like you kind of just need somebody to bounce ideas off of sometimes, right? And just Mm -hmm. kind of check you and like see if you're thinking through something correctly or in a smart way or whatever. And and I kind of do that for everybody. Like that's kind of my role. And, and, And largely I can still do that if I'm coaching people on a regular basis. But if I'm not involved in the implementation day to day, I won't be as helpful in that stuff. You kind of have to talk to somebody else who's like implementing stuff all the time and and has that context. And so I've been thinking about, well, can people just lean on each other more rather than me being the sort of center point of the wheel, right? And we're setting up processes for that to happen. Um, and, and I think that they can, but like one of the things that scares me is that we have a couple of team members who are really senior and have a huge amount of institutional knowledge who can provide that in the way that I do. And, and people that have been with your organization for the longest time are also the, the, at the biggest risk for leaving. Right. And, and I, and, and like, they'll listen to this and they'll know that we've, we've had these conversations and I know where they are. And it's not like, I think they're, they're going to up and leave or whatever. But I also know that like, some of them have other things that they want to do with their lives. And like, I want to support them in that. And I don't want them to feel trapped in the company either. And so it's just really hard when you're such a small organization because you have, you can only have one or two people that have that much institutional knowledge, like at a time almost. Right. And yep. so like that, I just, we have, I don't know. I don't know if we could have done a better job. I don't know if it's even possible at our size, but like, how do you, how do you retain that kind of like institutional knowledge that's really hard to contain in templates and Google Docs and processes and stuff? It's just this sort of like, I don't know, I've worked with 50 clients now and I can tell you that like, I don't get the feeling that email is going to go well. Like, so yeah, that, that sort of transferring that kind of like ineffable, just moment to moment learning, it, it scares me because at some point you're going to lose the people that have the most institutional knowledge, myself being one of the first ones. But how, yeah, I just don't know how you retain that sort of in a scalable way, I guess. Yeah, that, I mean, for whatever it's worth, that really concerned me a lot as well. And granted, yes, it was a slightly different organization. We were bigger and, and blah, blah, blah. But we lost two of the folks who did possess, in addition to myself, the most institutional knowledge of, of anyone on the team basically along with me leaving. And I think in retrospect, what I had, I I worried about that as well. And I think the worries that we would lose it, like that the transfer wouldn't happen well were warranted, but what wasn't warranted that I over prioritized in my mind was the value of a lot of that institutional knowledge. It's valuable, but I think I really placed a premium on it as a critical part and what at least proved in my situation, and it, it, coincidentally, I have two other friends who around the same time or months after sort of shifted out of their organizations in similar ways. And, and this was sort of a shared learning. It turns out that I think, and maybe it was a thing of my own ego or whatever, like I had just overemphasized just how much some of that stuff mattered to customers. It was like, okay, well, some little mistakes happened here or there. We're not doing this quite as well, but people figured it out and it was just fine small sample size, but that that's sort of been my takeaway. Uh, thanks. No, I really appreciate that. And yeah, I mean, I think the thing I'm trying to tell myself in those moments is even if it's lost, that might actually be a good thing because it yeah. doesn't mean 
way that we've been doing it is right or the best way. And sometimes you actually get the opposite where you get organizations that are really stuck and like, well, this is the way we've always done it, right? Or you have sort of, you know. Oh, sorry to interrupt. I was just going to say in in, in my case, or because you've done it for so long, you do all of, you're doing so much that you're inviting others to do and tend to so much. And when you leave, inevitably, some of that stuff just has to die because like you were saying, nobody's going to be able to do it just like the, Mm -hmm. the degree to which you can. And that death is good. I mean, like, I saw that with with uh, Wendy when when she took over my role. I mean, there were some things that yes, she could not do, like I did, just by virtue of not having been there seven years. And there are so many things that she just does a lot better, and because she's doing fewer things. And it, I thought that those things that have now died would be really important. Turns out, not necessarily. Hmm. That's great. Thanks. Yeah. I really appreciate that. And I think, yeah. And I think the other thing is just like, then how do you make, how do you help the rest of the organization get comfortable with things dying (laughs) and going away and thinking that that's okay. Right. And that it's not going to tank everything. So I think even, even just making that obvious to people and saying like, look, this is, this is a moment of change. Things are going to change. We have to hope that it'll get better or that the things that weren't that important are going to fall away. But yeah, I mean, of course, there's, I think there's a lot of perfectionism in a lot of leaders. (laughs) That's kind of how we get where we are. Michael Deering's Cognitive Distortions of Founders. It's a great and and topical, I think, to the podcast. He's a VC. I think he was early at eBay or something like that. I could be wrong on that, but really sharp guy and and, and good people. But he he has a fund called Harrison Metal and, and sort of an association with that. He creates a lot of content pretty interesting videos. But one of the pieces that's always resonated, I think I, I first was exposed to it at a workshop that he did. He basically says, look, sort of based on back and cognitive behavioral theory mm-hmm. and this notion that certain thoughts, certain distortions will color how we view anything or how we judge mm-hmm. anything. And he applies that framework to founders to introduce mm-hmm. some of the more common ones in founders. And you could, you know, map that onto leaders writ large, but some of the mm-hmm. founders ones are particular or ha- have their particular place. It, it's worth taking a taking a look at. And one of the things you said was was spot on um, with it. Anyway, I, I digress. But but the other that the is- other comment is I'm super psyched for you. And I mean, a lot of this, well, I find you to be exceedingly self-aware and also modest and you're you're describing these challenges i i imagine the very fact that you are recording these conversations reflects a candor with the team that i i suspect will create an incredibly healthy staging place for for a transition so i'm excited to see how that all how that all goes Thanks. Yeah, I appreciate it. You're making me think that I need to get you and these friends that have transitioned and put together like a monthly <laughs> help me through this thing. This has been very, very useful. And I, I appreciate your your insights. Thank you so much for being on the Leading by Example podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was super fun. And I'm excited to, to listen about this and, and your other guests as well. There's a lot of good ground to be covered here. Yeah, thanks again. Thanks again.